On June 17, 1972, Washington, D.C. police made a surprise discovery at an exclusive apartment complex. Stopping a burglary in progress, they were surprised to see that the perpetrators, with their hands up, were men wearing suits and ties. Because the men were eventually tied to high-level White House staffers, a scandal began to brew that would eventually lead to the resignation of President Richard Nixon himself. Hearings about the scandal were broadcast on American television in the summer of 1973, 50 years ago this summer. Americans were riveted, and Ayn Rand was among them. In a series of articles in the Ayn Rand letter, she recounted her unique observations about the hearings, the issues at stake, and the wider context of America's political culture. How did Ayn Rand's comments on the Watergate hearings differ from more conventional commentary of the day? What can we, they teach us about today's political context and the state of our culture? Those are the questions we will discuss today uh, on this latest episode of New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ben Baer, fellow and director of content at ARI, and with me is a special guest, Dr. Harry Binswanger, a philosopher, author of How We Know, member of ARI's board, and a longtime associate of Ayn Rand's. Welcome, Harry. Thanks for having me. So let's start with some background on this subject, which I think not everyone in our audience uh, knows about, because it, it happened 50 years ago, or before I was born. Uh, this is, uh, and one of the reasons they also might not know about it is that Ayn Rand's writings on the Watergate scandal were not republished in any of the anthologies that are easy to access. Uh, they appeared in her periodical, The Ayn Rand Letter, uh, between April and July of 1973. I've also counted at least seven other articles in the same period where she makes reference to the scandal. What's interesting, though, is that she almost didn't talk about it at all. Uh, Harry, in, in that first uh, essay, the first major essay of hers, Brothers, You Asked For It, she says she hadn't even wanted to write about the scandal in the first place. But she says the issue has grown beyond the level of party politics and is acquiring a deeper meaning, like an unfocused illustration for a certain philosophical text, which is worth considering in full focus. So. Uh, you knew Ayn Rand for many years. You were in her circles at the time when this came out. Why do you think she didn't want to write about it event at first? And then what do you think changed? The whole situation changed. It wasn't just her that changed. In the beginning, it was uh, which what she called what a misdemeanor or a minor thing that was being blown up by the press. So it was jumped on by the press who hated Nixon. The reason they hated Nixon was that he had been a strong anti-communist when he was in California politics in the late 40s and uh, going on into the 50s. He dropped that later, but they never forgave him. The liberal, then liberal um, intelligentsia always had a special hatred for his anti-communism because they were pro-communist. So uh, at the beginning, it was a lot of uh, a tempest in a teapot, as they say. It was a lot of noise and fire about nothing. Then Nixon, being the fool that he was, 
kept making it worse and worse and worse until it became something that did lead to his resignation and probably should have. Uh, you couldn't uh, support him any longer. You couldn't dismiss it because of the cover-up that he had engaged in rather than tell the American people the truth. Uh, I think that's generally well known. Uh, what's not well known is Ayn Rand's analysis of what actually happened on the philosophical level, not what actually happened in the uh, events of, that unfolded as to who said what to whom. So before we get into some of that philosophical analysis, it might also be useful just to give our audience some background context on her, her view of Nixon and the Nixon administration uh, in particular. Can you recount some of that for us? Uh, what was her view of him at first? How did it evolve over the years? What did she think of him as a political I candidate? Recall really early in her career, she uh, had a mildly positive view of him, but that was quickly dashed. And by the time of the Playboy interview um, in 1964, which is nine years before this, she regarded him as a champion, was the word, champion me tour. Uh, she thought he was so compromised that um, he had no value. Later, she improved her view of him when he appointed uh, Alan Greenspan to be head of his, I think it was head of his Council of Economic Advisors, uh, some role in the financial uh, side of his administration. Um, Greenspan reported that he was very intelligent, Nixon, which I, I don't doubt. But Basically, if you ask, what was Ayn Rand's essential view of Nixon? A zero. And that's in spite of the fact that she, I mean, she endorsed him for the presidency, for voting for him, at least. Oh, yeah. First in 1968. Zero's a lot better than minus 10, you know. <laughs> zero. Zero uh, was a relief from the alternatives, this was after the rise and fall of the new left and the violence of the 60s. And she organized uh, for his reelection, I think it was in 74, the anti-Nixonites for Nixon, because he was running against McGovern, who had made proposals such as why don't we cap everyone's income at $20,000 a year? Now, just for inflation, that multiplied by 15, uh, cap everyone's uh, income at 300000 a year. Well, there are a lot of professionals who need to earn more than that. Doctors, for example, lawyers, who cannot, who's, uh, CEOs, who cannot be replaced uh, without their uh, vision being lost and the uh, product of their work not being able to save the company. I'm thinking of Steve Jobs, who when he left Apple, Apple tanked and they had to bring him back 
um, some years later, and he revived the company single-handedly. So um, he was, as she described McGovern, as the first to offer full-fledged statism to American politics. So she thought he was the end of the road, and uh, she was willing to take a zero gladly in exchange for McGovern, or in preference to McGovern. It's especially interesting she endorses him against McGovern in 72, even though in his first term, 1971, there's the wage price controls. In 1972, there's the trip to China, which she sees as appeasing communist China. And at a certain point in the 72 campaign, he even, and she talks about this, proposes a kind of a version of guaranteed minimum income uh, of his own. So uh, I guess you can see why she would think he's a zero, but compared to the negative, that that's a factor. So, well, it's deeper than that. You want to, uh, no, I think this, we need one more overview thing. The big, the, the gorilla in the room was the emergence of the new left and its takeover of the intellectual world. So the days of the actual liberals were numbered. Uh, the leaders of the left were now the, what we call the progressives the new left socialists to communists were the only players in the game. And Nixon was anti-communist until he went to China. But even she even saw, she even wrote that that might be excusable if you're playing China off against Russia. But he didn't seem to be doing that. But there was a huge wave of evil coming through the country and it was imperative that that be stopped. So that's the background. Good. So let's talk about her evaluation of the, of the break-in and the cover-up themselves. And those, of course, it's important that you mentioned the last part about the, uh, the new left, because that's, from what we know now, part of what's motivating uh, the Nixon administration to engage in this campaign. But, uh, she, in, in her writings on this, she comments on both on the different aspects of the scandal. She talks about the, uh, the break-in itself. She talks about the cover-up. Uh, do you want to summarize for us what her evaluation of that scandal was? Well, she summarizes it right at the beginning of the first article where she says, um, if I, um, yeah, um, the bugging of the Democratic headquarters is a sordid, but not very important offense. Spying on the opposite party and planning spies in its organization or hiring hecklers to disrupt the opponent's meeting is such an old trick and has been practiced for so long by both major parties is not sufficient to provoke national concern and indignation. But she says, skipping down, uh, morally, the Watergate break-in by itself was petty larceny. The attempts to cover it up transformed it into a felony. But here the fog is so thick that nothing can be judged with certainty so far. But eventually we were able to judge with certainty. 
and the thing that brought Nixon down to be uh, actually have to resign is the tapes that he made. And, uh, you know, I only recall one comment she made to me. I think she made it to me about Watergate was that the big mystery she couldn't understand is why he didn't destroy the tapes early on. He had these incriminating tapes of his conversation with all the principals and their planning and scheming and so forth. And that was subpoenaed. Uh, and he refused to use them over and then eventually succumbed to pressure, handed them over and resigned. Why didn't he destroy the tapes? Of course, there are missing minutes that he might have destroyed. So that. Rosemary Woods, uh, his secretary, was blamed. There was a, I think it was. Um, she had a story about how she was. 30 minutes, 30 seconds. Huh? She had a story about how she was yeah. reaching across the desks and accidentally. Yeah, obviously, obvious lies uh, to cover up a portion that was that they did destroy. That was just too damning, I guess. Uh, and um, I read just recently that experts testified that the those tapes have been erased five times or more to make sure that no trace remained. So her story of, and they had a, yeah, her posture demonstrating how she was leaning this way with her hand that way and accidentally hit the wrong button. Uh, doesn't really add up. Totally unbelievable. So they did that, but but what's in here is so damning and yet so unsurprising. But you wonder, why did he do this? Why did he make the tapes in the first place? And why did he not destroy them? So uh, that is the fog that could not be judged with certainty. And it was dispelled by this book, which I read. It's a thick book. It's all the transcript of what was said in the office. And at some point, I want to get into the nature of it, but I think we better prepare the ground more. And one thing that the transcripts definitely don't resolve is the, is the motive for the break-in. And it's still debated by historians, whether it's that Nixon was trying to get dirt on his opponents, or he was trying to find out what dirt they had on him. And it could have been both. There's even theories about the CIA wanting to mess up his presidency, but we can leave those aside. The, the fact that it's hard to know what the motives were is itself one of the things that she thinks is philosophically significant. Uh, right. And is she, in, in a number of the articles that, that she writes on this, she she notes how a lot of the a lot of Nixon's critics are commenting on the scandal at the time, are uh, pointing the finger to his pragmatism, uh, but but pragmatism that is detached from right and wrong, which she says is a, a contradiction in terms. They seem to think there's some other kind of pragmatism, and yet she says no. This is uh, this is the the same kind of pragmatism that they practice. Uh, that uh, he he doesn't believe in any kind of philosophical or moral principles. He just sees 
some end he wants to achieve and whatever is necessary to get it, he's in favor of. But that's more or less the same uh, philosophy that they practice with regard to their various statist initiatives. And so, Harry, could you expand more on what point she's making there about pragmatism? Because I suspect that if there are philosophers out there listening to this who hear someone like Ayn Rand say that this is a sign of Nixon's pragmatism, philosophically speaking, they'd say, this isn't, this isn't James and Dewey, this is something else. But she says, no, this is pragmatism in its undiluted form. What did she mean by that? Well, it is James and Dewey and Peirce. It is uh, the view that principles, moral principles are invalid, that you cannot judge the present by the past, that reality is a flux. It, uh, forget reality. The basic metaphysics of pragmatism is that there's experience. So Ayn Rand's philosophy proceeds from the premise, existence exists. Reality is real. It is what it is. You have to adapt to it in the sense of accepting it and then working within the laws of nature to change it to better your life. The pragmatist view is no, we can't separate subject from object. It all is experience, which is neither exactly in here in the mind nor out there. We don't make those are old fashioned distinctions. So concepts and principles are not based on any identity of the nature of things outside. There's no outside. There's no uh, nature. There's no identity. There's no causality. So how do we get along? Well, we experiment. We try things and see what works. Will what works today work tomorrow? Oh, no, probably not. It's old fashioned to think that the, you've heard the language, the tired old solutions of the past uh, don't apply anymore. It's a new world. It's a new reality. Everything changes. It's a follower of those pragmatists are followers of Heraclitus, the ancient Greek advocate of universal change going down without identity. You can't step in the same river twice. And that shows up by, oh, say, the doctrine of the living constitution. The living constitution. We can't be bound by what the founding fathers thought was right. Now, it's true we can't be bound by what they thought was right unless we can prove it, it, it was right, which basically we can't. But those are outmoded. Those are from the past. What works today is the only thing, and we can't know until we try it. So we play things by ear. There is no objective, absolute test. For instance, individual rights? Come on, don't be old-fashioned. There are no absolutes. You have to balance rights, and the balanced solution of today is not binding on tomorrow. Tomorrow, new balance will be struck. We can be flexible. 
Look at the whole regulatory agencies, the alphabet agencies that were created in the wake of pragmatism. James and uh, Peirce wrote at the turn of the century. Dewey was early, started in the 19th century, but worked into the 20th century. And their basic message was forget absolutes, forget principles, forget grand abstractions, stick close to what you can see, smell, taste, and touch, and try it out. Morality? Morality has nothing to say about ultimate ends. You can try various things to get the goal that you feel like you want, but whether it's really good to go after that, like you're going after being president, is that really good? Or is it just fame? Is fame a, a real value? What do you mean real value? If it makes you happy, if it solves the distress that you feel, then that's all there is. So try something and see what works. James wrote an article called The Sentiment of Rationality, in which he said the test of an idea is it produces a feeling in you. The test of whether an idea is true or not is does it produce the sentiment of rationality in you? The feeling, yeah, this makes sense. That's it. That's all the proof you need. So it's it's emotionalism. It's it's horrible. It's the suicide of philosophy, among other things. And that's what Nixon and his conspirators were engaging in in an especially crude form. Earlier, you were sharing with me a, uh, a particular passage from the transcripts of the tapes oh. where you thought yeah. it was... Uh, coming out in an in a interesting way. Could you remind well, us about that? Yeah. Um, so it's uh, 689 pages, and I believe I read them all. I certainly read a lot. And here on page 118 is the following. When they're discussing offering clemency to the Watergate criminals, as a way of securing their, um, uh, a way of preventing them from testifying against the White House staff to gain uh, an advantage in plea bargaining situation. And so they're considering, should we give them clemency? And Nixon says, as a quote, no, it is wrong, that's for sure. That is the only value, moral value judgment in the entire transcripts. That one line, the granting clemency would be wrong. The rest of it is all about tactics and strategy with no moral judgment, no principles, just discussion of should we go the hangout route and tell the truth. That's called the hangout route or the stonewall route which is deny everything and what will work best to keep them safe from their enemies. And they decide on the limited hangout route. This is the other effect of pragmatism. Pragmatism is one of the most anti-conceptual philosophies. 
anyone in America who went to college since 1925, which would include Nixon, was indoctrinated in pragmatism. It was the American philosophy and probably still is, um, in essence, uh, taught in American universities. So it's not like a question of where they got these ideas. But anyway, pragmatism is against abstraction. Against, uh, James wrote essays in radical empiricism. Empiricism is the theory of knowledge that says be suspicious of abstraction, stick close to the senses. If you can't see it, touch it, taste it, it's probably no good. So uh, the other thing that is so noticeable about these transcripts is that they never identify anything as what it is. A spade is never called a spade. It's always out of focus. Like, should we do the hangout route? Not, should we tell the truth? Should we reveal the facts? We could stonewall. Not, well, we could just deny everything and be absolute in our denial. And the entire, it's very hard to read, the entire transcript is in this kind of emotionalist shorthand um, where you don't, it's all out of focus. You don't know what's going on uh, because Metaphor, it's talked about in terms of metaphor, undefined terms, a lot of pronouns. Well, it would be that, wouldn't it? No, nothing is ever pinned down, which is pure pragmatism. One of the things I found especially interesting about her analysis of the pragmatism, not only of the Watergate controversy, but of the whole period uh, in terms of the whole political climate of that age is the way she talks about how if you're a pragmatist and you dispense with principles in the way that you just described, well, you still need some guidance. I mean, especially if you're in politics, you're a leader, you're, you're trying to lead people somewhere, you're trying to lead the nation in a certain direction. So you need some source of guidance, but it's not the guidance of principles. And so what you default to then is following the guidance of people, uh, loyalty to individual personalities, or hatred and opposition to certain people and personalities. And that then explains a lot of the character of the controversy, because what is it that Nixon's most worried about with regard to the Democrats? Well, it's, it's not explaining why they're wrong on the issues, why they have the wrong uh, political philosophy, for instance, it's, it's, well, what kind of dirt can we get on them, which is another metaphor, you know, what kind of scandals can we tar them with, and, and we better hope that they don't have any dirt on us, uh, because then they'll be able to tar us as personalities. And this is, I think, part of, uh, you were talking before about the, how pragmatism is the most anti-conceptual of philosophies, and there's a lot of commentary in, in her article about the the nature of the concrete bound anti-conceptual mentality, uh, not only of um, the Watergate conspirators, but of the leftist activists who they're opposing uh, and how none of them, the, the, the conspirators 
don't even think for themselves about whether they can trust the orders that they're being given, whether they really know these have come uh, from higher up from from Nixon, whether they're going to be protected as they seem to think they are. Um, I, f I found the uh, her comments on Magruder's testimony especially interesting uh, because it, it bringing out that kind of anti-conceptual tribalist mentality because he's he's someone when he's asked in the, the hearing to explain how he justified this to himself. He's one of the few who at least Congress says that he thought that it was wrong, but that what silenced that doubt in his mind was this kind of re lingering resentment that he had for the fact that the leftist activists were breaking the law all the time and they're able to get away with it. Why can't we do it too? And that's what seems to motivate him. And there's a lot of evidence to indicate that Nixon had a, a kind of similar mentality, just this resentment against uh, the 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 dirt that the other yeah. side was engaging in. Why can't we do it ourselves? Yeah, the enemies list. He had an actual written list of enemies, including I think the New York Times as a whole, and uh, they were his enemies. But I've got two words for you, Ben. Hunter Biden. The right is obsessed with Hunter Biden. That's all they want to talk about. And the left, Trump, it's, you know, the worst thing that could happen to CNN and uh, MSNBC is that Trump not be nominated. That's their lifeblood is attacking Trump. It's you watch the news and it's all the people. She viewed ideas as the motor of history, that what causes change is people's ideas. And the more deep the ideas, the more they control subsidiary ideas. So the deepest ideas of all are philosophical ideas, and they control the entire outlook of the culture. Now, just think of the difference between American culture and Islamic. Just think of the difference between American culture and the Dark Ages, the culture of the Dark Ages, where people whip themselves in order to be pure from sin. They went around lashing themselves. There was a group of people known as the Flagellants. So anyway, th those differences come from basic ideas, like this world is horrible and I can't trust my senses, but there's another world with a loving father who would take care of me if I only mortify myself in the way that he commands versus the proper view that your life is your own and the good is to live it, as Ayn Rand says in Atlas Shrugged, or has a lead character say. So the switch from Issues involving ideas, concepts, abstractions, basic goals to Hunter Biden, Donald Trump, and all the assorted lesser fish that both tribes go against is a, it's an amazing switch. And it's, it was already well underway when she wrote, as she said, it had been going on for some time. But boy, there's nothing but scandal 
uh, to offer today for a political campaign. So that's the result of pragmatism, and it's the result of pragmatism in the media. I don't mean just that they uh, don't follow principle, but they too think in terms of the sentiment of rationality and the emotional standard of, well, let's try and see if it makes us happy. So they, what they view as significant is not ideas, which she calls, um, in here she says, uh, uh, their view is that making speeches on issues is a waste of time. The only thing is um, to talk about who's corrupt and who isn't. So uh, that is really taken off due to the absence of principles. You can't imagine Thomas, well, actually, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams had a feud about morality, but it didn't govern the country. The outcome of elections was not determined by whether or not um, there had been an illegitimate child that was brooded about, but we got men of, of stature because there were people who understood principle. For instance, so let me just throw in one plug here. Thomas Jefferson wrote to his son, if you're only going to read one book on the affairs of men, it should be John Locke's Second Treatise of Government. John Locke's Second Treatise of Government is a terrific, tremendous inauguration and development of the theory of individual rights. It's all the first historical exposition of the idea that man has rights. So these people were moved by ideas and the populace too were moved by ideas. Uh, not by scandals, and now it's they're they're gone. The ideas Further are gone. The, it's all po tribal politics. On that issue of the importance of the power of ideas, uh, one thing that she comments on is, I mean, she she in effect is responding to a question the reader might ask: uh, if if these. Uh, Republican operatives who are so pragmatic and who are so ruthless and willing to throw away principle to get whatever they want, if they're that pragmatic, and she notes that they get more pragmatic the higher up the scale higher of the yeah. administration you go, why then is it that nonetheless at the same time in American politics the left is winning? Why isn't the, the really pragmatic side winning the political battle? And would you comment on this? Because I think her answer here is, is, is very interesting. Yeah, it's very clear that the, um, the left, for all their pragmatism, does have an explicit moral position, which is altruism. And they want to enact it. They want communism, which is altruism, the Sermon on the Mount. The meek, let the meek inherit the earth, only not after death, but arrange society so that no one is that rich man who can pass through the eye of a needle. 
uh, uh, sorry, who has, is as likely to get into heaven as a camel is to pass through the eye of the needle. So Christianity, as Nietzsche famously said, from the outset spelled life loathing itself. The left wants to stop life wherever they can. And to do that, they're willing to bring down society. They're willing to stop industry. They're willing to go back to primitive conditions. They worship savage tribes and they hate material success. They hate the conquest of nature. They want you to surrender to nature. The, um, the right doesn't like that implementation, but holds the same implicit moral code. You know, they go to church more than the, uh, than the left does. So they both hold altruism. She explains this. They both hold the Sermon on the Mount kind of view of ethics. But one side wants to move in that direction in society, have society and government based on that. And the other doesn't, but it believes it would be right if the government did enact socialism. You've heard the, the Brahmite, well, communism is the ideal, but human nature can't live up to it, which is a total concession to communism. And the people believe this because they've accepted Christian ethics. And why have they accepted Christian ethics? No good reason. There's no basis for it in, re in reality or in reason. So that's a long answer. And for the, the reason then that the left is winning is because they're the ones who are appealing to the moral principle that people have actually accepted, which gives them some and kind of guidance. And they have a goal. Kind of, yeah. They have a goal. What do the conservatives want? Well, let's not enact what the left wants. We, we want to... Uh, you know, go back a little bit to, to the past. We want to um, conserve. We don't want a wealth tax. We don't want more immigration. We don't want, so anything that the left wants, they are against, they just reactive. What do they want to seek instead? Cut the deficit? That's about it. And the deficit is not really the issue. It's spending that's the issue. And then most of them don't want to cut spending. So uh, both of them hold the same moral absolute. The left wants to live by it to some extent, even if sort of unconsciously that's what they want. The right says, we don't have to do that, do we? That's for church on Sunday. But I want to run my business. I don't want that. Do we have to go there? Let's not go that fast. Let's not go that far. You can't win that way. You can only give ground more and more. Well, let's talk more about the political implications of some of these altruist and pragmatist ideas and, and how they related to the Watergate scandal. Uh, you mentioned some of the left-wing ideas behind uh, collectivist politics. And with those ideas in mind, it's probably not surprising that when leftist commentators and even uh, some of the uh, members of the congressional committee were asked to speculate about 
what caused this scandal, they had relatively superficial things to say. So for instance, in the July 16th, 1973 article that Rand writes on this, she, she recounts one senator's idea for how you could prevent scandals like this in the future. And his diagnosis is just, there's too much money in the re-election campaign. Uh, and this is, I think, referring to the fact that the, a lot of campaign money was illicitly used to fund the break-ins and other surreptitious activities of the Nixon White House. Why is Ayn Rand not impressed with this, uh, with this explanation for the scandal, would you say? Because what you spend your money on depends upon what you think is good. Now, people, when they hear that, they think only of the Christian idea of good. Oh, I should spend my money on missionary work in Uganda, or I should give my money to this or that cause. No, I mean, first of all, do you think your own life is your ultimate good, or do you think service to others is your ultimate good? Because they can't be combined. So if you are an egoist, who wants his own happiness on this earth, as we objectivists do, money would be spent in the pursuit of that through what? Principles, which means money would be given to educate people in the philosophy of individual rights and the philosophy of reason that underlies it. But if you're a an altruist, you, you think more money should be invested either in helping the unfortunate or uh, getting in politicians who will spend more money on welfare, uh, level down, take money from the haves and give it to the have-nots, egalitarianism which is justified by altruism, a pseudo justified by altruism. So what you spend your money on depends upon your standard of value. It depends on what you're living for, which is what morality tells you. Your code of morality is your ideas on what does it all mean? Why am I living? What should I do? And then basically two alternatives achieve real productive goals for yourself, make yourself happy by accomplishing demanding goals through productive work, or prostrate yourself in obedience to a supernatural being that you imagine is there, or to the needy, or to the homeless, or now to the environment to keep the temperature of the planet where it is, we've got to keep the place, save the planet. The planet might get warmer and we can't have that. Why? Because there's no answer to that. Why? You know, a raise in sea levels is not an answer. So money can't, whether money corrupts depends upon the person and his ideas. If you're an objectivist, you're going to use money in a noble way to um, even political money to advance the cause of freedom for everyone, for everyone. And you would not dream of spending it on 
getting in power because you don't even believe in power. You know, uh, Ludwig von Mises, the greatest uh, economist of capitalism, of, at least of the 20th century, was asked, what is the first thing that you would do if somehow you became president of the country? And he said, abdicate. That is an objectivist view of holding political power. Holding political power is something that you might have to do to save the country from disaster, but you don't want to do it. Even George Washington didn't want to do it. And he went home voluntarily after serving, gladly after serving two terms. So money doesn't corrupt. Corrupt ideas corrupt. And there's another dimension of this, which comes up in, in the article. She says, it's not big business contributions that corrupt politicians, but the politicians' power to oh. demand and extort such contributions which works like a protection racket. And she's, she's referring to the fact that in a mixed economy, politicians have power over the lives of businessmen and businessmen then need to spend money, make contributions in, in self-protection. Uh, and the, the role of the mixed economy in this scandal is something that looms large in, I think, the last installment of her articles, uh, her article, The Principles and The Principles, which is spelled two different ways. Uh, and it's, it's really, I find this part really fascinating because she, she observes how in, if, as you watch the hearings and how complex they are and all the different players making all kinds of allegations against each other, no one can really determine who's lying, who's telling the truth, who's ultimately responsible, who ordered the break-ins, who merely tried to cover them up. She says, even the men who are involved in this scandal don't seem to know who's responsible and who gave yep. the orders. And that's right. in part because none of them are, are bound together by any kind of common goals. That's the pragmatism again. And that this is exactly what you would expect in a, a statist mixed economy where, where there's an increasing degree of control over the economy. More and more people have more power over each of our lives. But that means that the more power they have, they can't, they can't directly control our lives. They have to delegate it. They have to delegate it to power brokers. They then have to make decisions, speculating about what people higher up would have said. And the overall lesson that she draws from this, and I will put this quote up on screen because I think this is really... This is something I always walked away from this article with. She says, now multiply the complexity of that chaos a thousandfold, then a thousandfold again, and you will have an approximate picture of the government of a mixed economy. Try to project what is involved in the operations of a government that holds the power to control the economy of the whole country, which means power to control the work, the career, the ambition, the achievement, the income, the property, the future of every citizen, what sort of pressures, schemes, intrigues, maneuvers, and con games would this generate? And, and she's saying, so the same kind of chaos, the same kind of abdication of responsibility that you see happening in uh, the Watergate scandal, it, it's the same, it's a, a parallel or a, a microcosm, I'm not quite sure which one she means, of the nature of the mixed economy as such. 
Uh, Harry, this is, I right. find this interesting because it's so different from the kind of usual critique of, of statism, which is that it involves dictatorial control where the, you know, the, the dictator does have control over everything and all knowing like Big Brother, but she's saying something quite different. Do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I do. There's so many things to say about that. The first one I want to say is not a direct answer to your question, but it just leapt out at me. She makes the point in a number of articles that there's no way for a regulatory agency to proceed honestly. If you have to sacrifice some men to others, what is the moral way to do that? I'll give you an example of that. So this is the complexity of the mixed economy is in part because there are no principles. The principle is the public interest, okay? Let's take an example close to home. The FDA. So you're on the FDA board. You're a completely noble hero of altruism. You're a saint. And you're on the FDA board and some data comes to you about a vaccine for COVID. So this is three years ago. Okay, how long do you demand that that data be analyzed? How long do you hold up the vaccine? You've got a way, well, there's some chance that this is not actually good for people. So let's say I assign that a 5% chance that it's actually not good for people and a 2% chance is actually going to harm more people than it hurts. On the other hand, to find that out, I have to delay giving, uh, allowing the vaccine to be given to people. And there's a 95% chance that it will help them with COVID. So there's a 95 chance percent chance of some people's lives being saved because I voted, let's let them have it right away. Let's not do more testing. But there's a 5% chance that some people were killed by, well, I made it 2%. There's some, chance, some people that maybe are gonna be killed by this, maybe lots of people in certain circumstances. So, how do I weigh the lives of people who are hurt by delaying my decision to do more tests versus the lives that would be lost if the tests would show something other than the early tests show? There's no way to make that decision. Well, okay, if 10,000 people have to die, that's okay, but not 20,000. So either way, because they insert themselves in the middle between the judgment of the individual as to what he puts in his body and the willingness of a company to manufacture a product and offer it for sale. They say, no, you can't use your mind. I'm going to decide that, I, the government. There's no way for them to substitute for the individual judgment of the individual. So someone's gotta be sacrificed. How do you decide what to sacrifice? It's the same with all the mixed economy, regulatory state things. There's no principle. Remember, just the economy side. There was a $3 trillion boost to a $6 trillion budget during COVID to send out checks. I got one, my wife got one. 
I think it was $2,500 each. How much money can you take from some people to give to other people before it becomes unjust? I mean, what's the right amount? Should it have been $4 trillion? Maybe. I mean, more people would be helped, but then more people would be hurt, the people that you took the $4 trillion from. So what is the right amount of sacrificing of some people to other people? And you can't even identify the people because the same people are both the payers and the receivers of this money, uh, which is actually just printed up in the end. So we all get rising prices. Is that better? Is it better that everybody now is paying more for food and housing? but they had money during COVID or would it have been better the other way? How can you judge that? There's no way. There are no principles. Once you abandon individual rights, there's no moral way to make a decision. So that, that's the first answer to what makes the welfare state such a Byzantine bureaucrat, bureaucratic corruption instead of uh, the clean operation of a market. Now, there were some other... Uh, questions that you had, and I've gone on so long, I don't remember. Could you restate what the other questions were? Just her parallel between the uh, the chaos of the Watergate conspirators, the absence of responsibility, and then the, the, the parallel chaos of the mixed economy. What did you think? Yeah, what, did well, you have that, that? Yeah, I had a comment that um, the conclusion she drew from that <clears throat> from the hearings side of it, which you alluded to, people think of the government, oh, let the government decide. The government should provide this and so forth. And they're not thinking of what the hearing showed. That means Sam Irvin in Congress. It means Haldeman and Ehrlichman in the executive branch and Nixon. It means all these little characters who have no idea what should be done and are simply playing for power. So it helps to understand when you're saying society should do it, the government should do it, that you're talking about not very impressive little people, not about some gigantic omniscient deity that comes down and makes a decision based upon the public interest, which even a deity couldn't know because there is no such thing. So we concretize what government is, who government is. One of the things I recently discovered after reading more of the history about this is how it also concretizes the the very precise machinations of the mixed economy. I don't know if she meant to say that this is a, a simply a parallel or actually a microcosm, but I think in fact it was a microcosm because the more you find out about this, part of the reason that Nixon was so paranoid about the Democrats and part of the reason he wanted to spy on them to find out what dirt they might have on him is that there's very good reason to think they did have dirt on him dirt related to uh, basically political corruption as a result of the mixed economy. Just before the Watergate scandal, there was a scandal that I had never heard of and most people have probably forgotten about, the ITT scandal, 
where the American corporation ITT was getting bigger and bigger and more successful, uh, acquiring more companies, doing mergers. And Nixon's Justin, Justice Department wanted to trust bust them. They wanted to shut them down because they were getting too big. Well, uh, ITT didn't like that very much. And somebody in the Nixon administration made an offer to them that will hold back on the trust busters if you agree to give us a very large campaign donation uh, to fund the Republican National Convention in Miami. And uh, the Democrats got wind of this and started investigating it. And uh, that was one of the things that Nixon was worried that they had on him. And then there were like half a dozen other cases of the same thing, uh, the same kind of thing leading up to this period where other companies uh, like the Milk Producers Association were lobbying for a change to the price of milk because there were price controls on milk and there was an airline that wanted to do a merger and they were giving donations to Nixon. George Steinbrenner, who went on to you know, buy the, the Yankees, he had a shipbuilding company in the Great Lakes and they were trying to do antitrust action against him. And so he was giving money to the Nixon campaign. And so there was all kinds of dirt they had on Nixon where he was doing quid pro quos, basically. And he was worried that the Democrats knew this. And that's one of the things he wanted to to find out by doing the Watergate break in. Um, so there's a there's a real scandal here. It's a scandal of the mixed economy. And uh, Ayn Rand sees that. And yet these are not the concerns. This is not the reason why the, the Democrats were leading the hearings are worried about it. This is not what they see this that's scandalous about it. How would you assess her view of their motivations uh, for leading this inquiry and, and these hearings? The Democrats? Yes. Uh, she, she thought they were morally the equivalent. They were doing the same thing, and she pointed to various corrupt things that had happened under the Democrats. I think we need to make clear why it's assigned to the mixed economy, all this corruption. Why uh, wouldn't it be true in any economy? No, it would not be true in a laissez-faire capitalist economy because the government is not giving out favors. So there is no trust busting in a laissez-faire economy. So you don't have to bribe people to uh, not engage in it. It's illegal uh, uh, in a, a free society to punish businesses for success. And all the other things that are um, subsidies, you know, bridges to nowhere and uh, building things in the home state, dams and roads and so forth, all that would not happen under laissez-faire capitalism. The government would do nothing but protect your rights against criminals and foreign evaders. Settle controversies in the courts uh, through the suit, the procedure of civil suit, and of course, criminal law to uh, protect you from criminals. Uh, but they would not be, for instance, engaged in public health. They would, there wouldn't be any such concept as acting for the public health. You act for your health, I act for my health. We don't have any concept of the public shoes, the public apparel 
oh, well, this clothing goes on the market. It's not good for the public apparel, public fashion. You take care of your own apparel and your own fashion, and you should take care of your own health. Of course, there's the issue of, you know, typhoid Mary, but that's a, that almost never comes up. That's a red herring. So, um, and it's, it's protection of rights in that case, but it's not just public health. So the welfare state, which gives out money to people because they don't have money, and the regulatory state, which says, no, you can't act because we know better. So we are going to tell you what you can and can't do within your, what you used to call your rights. Those kinds of things call for corruption. There's no way to do them honestly. There's, uh, there are favors and penalties to be dispersed. And in that situation, corruption flourishes. So they call it crony capitalism. No, it's crony statism. Capitalism doesn't have cronyism because there's no loot being dispensed or taken. Issue of intervention and the uh, violation of capitalism that we call the mixed economy that breeds corruption. Well, Harry, let's let's start to wrap up by uh, talking about lessons that we can draw from Ayn Rand's commentary on the scandal for today. So let's fast forward to the present. And, and you already touched a bit on the, the tribalistic nature, the pragmatist nature of today's politics. You mentioned the obsession uh, on the left about the scandals of Hunter Biden. Likewise, on the left, the obsession about Trump. And we also have uh, the prospect now of a, of a former president uh, being indicted and uh, who knows what kind of hearings we might get in the future about those scandals. Uh, are these the right kind of scandals that we should be focusing on? Or is there a broader perspective that we should be paying attention to perhaps with some of Ayn Rand's insights in mind? Well, I think the Trump indictment is an entirely different thing. The Trump indictment insofar as it relates to his attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power is a proper uh, indictment to bring if it's true. And I think it certainly is true. Then it deserves to be uh, used against him, meaning he probably should go to jail. But that is uh, atypical. Take, um, take the um, Monica Lewinsky thing. I had to agree reluctantly with Democrats that as sordid and disgusting as that was, as what a creep it revealed Clinton to be, although we kind of knew it already, it wasn't a matter of national uh, concern or government concern, his sexual ethics or lack thereof. So uh, that's a kind of, in the Hunter Biden scandal, that's, you know, it's, it, it's wrong to pressure a foreign government to give money to your son. Okay, but that's of a different order than attempting to overthrow an election and calling for mob action, uh, which Trump engaged in. That's a different kind of thing. But in general, uh, what she says is so true today that 
there are no issues left. People don't talk about issues. It's all about scandal. And it, the fact that in one case, the scandal is a scandal, maybe in both cases, scandal is a scandal. It doesn't mean that the issues don't have to be discussed. They do. And the country is being torn apart by issues that are being fought over without identifying them. The big issue being, are we an altruist nation who mm -hmm. has to enact communism? Or are we an egoist nation that should enact protection of individual rights? Capitalism versus socialism, which is the moral system. That's the big issue. It's not discussed. Who discusses that? No one. Present not company even, accepted. <laughs> and something that not even the people who want to indict Trump, perhaps legitimately, uh, they're, they're not even interested in discussing this. They see the they see the problem with the way that he tried to retain power, but uh, uh, not uh, there's no discussion of his political objectives, the political objectives of his opponents. Uh, that's not entering into anybody's conversation. Well, I don't mean to endorse the Democratic Party's gleeful embrace of anything anti-Trump. I'm anti-Trump, but not pro-Democrat. I'm anti-Democrat, anti-Republican, anti-Trump. Uh, so I don't want to be misunderstood as endorsing uh, the methods and goals and psychology of the left. I'm, I'm not. Would you say that uh, there are any parallels between Nixon's scheming and the kind of scheming that may well have occurred in the Trump administration in the effort to overturn the election. Yes. Uh, both of them were motivated by the desire to hold power without, and this she says this, without any what for. Uh, Nixon, when he got in, completely reversed all the things that he stood for ideologically. He went to China, communist nation, made nice, nice with them, brought them into the UN eventually uh, through his, his uh, rapprochement with them. Uh, he um, imposed wage and price controls. In other words, he established a dictatorship overnight for no reason. I mean, what would be the reason to establish a dictation? But the market was ended at a stroke. Now that fortunately got repealed, but he was a free enterpriser. That was what he was known as anti-communist. So as soon as he got in, he changed his stripes. Uh, this happens a lot with politicians. Trump, of course, had no stripes to change he had he was a lifelong democrat until near the election he became a republican and when he got in he did a random assortment of things some things he said he wouldn't do some things that he said he would do and didn't do like you know the wall which 
would have been horrible, but he basically didn't do that. And he didn't, certainly didn't get Mexico to pay for the wall. But that's, I don't even, getting into that is too disgusting. He was a uh, mix of statist and anti-statist policies. The climax of it for me to talk about these conservatives who think he's in favor of traditional American values or something. When the second uh, budget deal was being discussed, after the three trillion was passed unanimously by the Senate and then was passed by the House, unanimously, um, there was another one that was in, on the order of two billion trillion, I mean. And Trump's comment was, a big number is better than a lower number. Now, the budget is the measure of the government's take out of the economy and of its power. The higher the spending of government, the more contracted your freedom is. Unless they're spending it to protect in a war, but that isn't what was on the table. So he was, his mind, or what passes for it, was a higher number of spending is bigger than a lower number. Bigger government is better than smaller government. That's his, that's his announced statement. And he has the support of all these right wingers who think he's going to drain the swamp or would have drained the swamp. So uh, it's, a, it's a horrendous mess reminiscent of the Watergate, but worse because the pragmatism of Trump is 10 times that of Nixon. So Nixon never would have said A and non-A on the same day. Like Trump would, I forget what the lies were, but he would come out with some statements. It's not really a lie because he doesn't know what reality is. He would come out and say it's this in the afternoon. In the evening, you tell another audience it's not this. With no concern. Now, Nixon never would have done that. But to a pragmatist who says there are no absolutes, things change. Maybe in the afternoon it was A and in the evening it was non-A. Who's to say no? Well, thank you for that, Harry. I think your perspective on this has been invaluable. We should start to wrap up. And the first thing I want to do to do that is to give our viewers some information about how they can learn more on the topic we've been discussing. And that's to go to the horse's mouth to, to read for themselves the, the five different articles on the Watergate scandal that Ayn Rand wrote in the 1970s. All of them are bound together in the Ayn Rand letter, along with a number of other essays on, on many different topics, some of which touch on Watergate, some of which are comments on other issues of the day during the, the height of the, of the 1970s. So you can get a copy of that if you go to bit.ly slash letter. Please check that out. Next week's show, we'll be talking about a, a topic that uh, Nixon was involved in himself, and that was uh, the relationship between the United States and China. Zimut Goen and Scott McDonald will be discussing U.S.-China relations over the question of Taiwan. 
if you enjoyed uh, today's episode and you want to uh, you want to follow us, you want to send us questions about what we discussed today, suggest new episodes, please send us an email uh, to newideal at einrand.org. Also, if you want to be able to follow us on YouTube, you can you can subscribe to the channel. You can click the bell to get notifications when we go live. Uh, if you're watching a recording of this, please write a comment, share the link. This helps optimize the algorithm. Please do the same thing if you're watching on Facebook. And I think that that wraps us up. So uh, thanks again very much, Harry, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. And I would say to your audience, if you haven't read particularly the principals, P-A-L-S, on the personnel of the hearing, it is really entertaining to read and very accurate as one who watched those hearings himself can testify. Yeah, she, she makes observations of the personalities as, as a novelist would, uh, by as a novelist would. diagnosing the essence of the personality as it comes across in television. Thanks for that, Harry, and uh, we will hope to see you again, and we will see everyone in the audience next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.